Hello? If you're listening to this, you've survived the Georgian flu. Please send help. Hi, and welcome to The 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is the literary center of Cincinnati, located at 414 Walnut Street. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts events with authors and speakers. Joining us today on The 12th Story are Grace Dobush, a freelance writer and the author of Crafty Superstar. Did I mispronounce your name again, Grace? No, no, you've pronounced it right. Just, just checking, because <laughs> Grace was going over that we, we trained for this, so I just wanted to check. Uh, of course, Mercantile Library board member and a producer of the show, Brennan Cole. Hello. Brennan. And myself, Mercantile Library librarian, Cedric Rose. Chris Messick is over here uh, manning the equipment. We have had some technical difficulties suitable for a podcast about the end of civilization, a world in which technology no longer exists. We felt like technology no longer existed for a while here. It really afternoon. didn't. Um, and uh, But we, I think we all enjoyed uh, Emily St. James Mandel's Station Eleven, the book that we will be discussing today. It won the 2015 Arthur C. Clarke Award was a finalist for the National Book Award and the Penn Faulkner Award. Mandela is also a staff writer for the, for the Millions. And you know, I worked on a little uh, intro as we discussed before the podcast, trying to describe this book, but perhaps the three of us together can do a better job. Brennan, how would you describe Station Eleven? I'm, I'm not sure I can describe this book in a simple sentence, which is what we talked about doing, so thank you for not that up this way, but what you have with this book is a it is a, a fast forward twenty years into the future, uh, post the Georgian flu, which has uh, wiped out ninety nine percent of the world, and you follow along uh, with a group of people who lived through the Georgian flu, and they are traveling through the upper Midwest, and they are performing Shakespeare and the symphony. And they are bringing hope and art to the people who are left in the world. And uh, there's a uh, main character in that troupe. Her name is Kirsten. 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 And um, Kirsten uh, is the uh, one of the lead characters in the troupe. We meet her before the flu, and we meet her again after the flu. And and uh, Emily. Mandel does this quite a bit. She goes back and forth between what happened right before the world came to um, an end and then what's happened since. Um, and so it's a little bit of an adventure n- novel. It's a little bit of a dystopian novel. Um, and uh, I, I, th- I thought it was a, a, a great look at um, what the world might look like um, if, if everyone were gone. And there is that theme throughout the book of what does art mean when you have nothing left, I think? I mean, not to jump mm. on a theme this early of the whole thing. But, um, and so Kirsten, now is she one of the little girls who is on stage at the opening of the novel when Arthur Leander, Shakespearean actor and celebrity, dies as King Lear on stage in Toronto days before the pandemic wipes everybody out? Yeah, so the first scene of the book is that you're in... Um, uh, Arthur Lander, who's this longtime stage actor, I kept picturing an older 
George Clooney, but maybe I'm I'm wrong about that. Oh, that's, that's funny because I was actually picturing um, the guy in Michael Clayton, who's Michael, who is George Clooney's friend. I forget who the actor is, but that's who I was picturing oh, okay. for this. Well, yeah. So I mean, we you read this book and you picture this older actor. I mean, this would be Clooney years from now, um, and he's doing this stage performance of King Lear. There's a young woman who's. Well, I don't know what, if she was uh, 12 years old or something at the time of the... You're like uh, eight, or nine, eight, eight or nine, very young. And it's Kirsten. Uh, so we see her then. Um, Leander, Arthur Leander dies on stage uh, in a, a very dramatic death. Um, and a, a, a Very Shakespearean, very, actually. Very Shakespearean, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and there's a guy in the audience who jumps up on stage and tries to save his life. And then, uh, you know, basically the book fast forward forwards and we find out um, Kirsten has survived so has the guy who jumped up on stage um, and uh, they're they're both living in this this post-apocalyptic world and you kind of see what's happened to them I really enjoyed how the book jumped backwards and forwards to I mean because knowing that it's a post-apocalyptic dystopian kind of future you probably started reading the book knowing that everyone is dying. And so I kind of like that she played into that. Like, towards the end of the first or the second chapter, she's like, and that was the last time that anyone, like, had internet for the next millennia or whatever. Um, I thought that that was nice how she revealed the, co- the, the characters and their stories by not ec- pure exposition, which can feel very ham-handed, but rather showed these vignettes that showed the true sense of these characters and also how they were all tied together. And she sort of tags some characters with, this is what happened, two days, they had two more days to live. And it, I don't know, it really does make the hair on the back of your neck stand up a little. It's really chilling. I mean, the, uh, the scenes of the mass exoduses from these cities, um, it really makes you think. And I thought it was interesting too that, um, so, the book sort of co- reaches its culmination in a fictional city um, in western Michigan on Lake Michigan. Um, just I, here, this was this was one point of irritation I had with the book. Just tell me what city it was. I mean, like I know it's a, f- a fictional, but it's very clear she's talking about Western Michigan. Certainly, there, but we invented some names, and so I, I was, you know, I definitely was, Googled Severn City. I was like, is this yeah. a real city? Yeah. I, I did like, the same not, thing, uh-huh. and I'm like trying to figure out where they're going. Like, just tell us what this like. This was former Western Michigan, and she's going. But anyway, yes. So <laughs> they the the troupe is coming down the lake, uh, and they're performing Shakespeare, and they go into this one town, which is led by. Um, uh, I oh, his name just went out of my head, but it's led by this cult leader, um, Tyler, aka is it Tyler the Ty- Prophet? Tyler the Prophet, uh, who <laughs> not Tyler the Creator, who is a completely other person, right? And and you know, s- spoiler, t- Tyler is connected to other characters in the book, and as the book begins to, um, as you get as you learn more about who he actually is, you 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 realize that you saw him before. The, the end of the world, and, and then now you're seeing him kind of as the, um, you, you, you see him 20 years in the future. And so he um, has, he's taking on a bunch of wives. Uh, I mean, it's your, it's your garden variety cult with multi, multiple, you know, strange man leading it with your, multiple your wives. Your garden variety post-apocalyptic. <laughs> garden variety cult, post-apocalyptic. Yeah. <laughs> in Western Michigan. And no you, see, you see him go from this cute little, this little boy who is the, Arthur Leander's son. Yes. Okay, so there you uh, go. From his second or th- second marriage, I think. 
standing in front of an airplane uh, full of dead people who have landed. They were quarantined, never got off the plane. His mother has been telling him that everything happens for a reason. He's been reading the graphic novel by Arthur's first wife. And Grace, I, I agree that, yes, the author does an incredible job of, like, connecting everything. It's also did, like did it bother you guys at all. It it's was, also no, like no, no. I, Deus I, ex machina. Like it's I, it's oh, too good to be okay. true. I mean, I do appreciate the interweaving that she was doing. Um, in a way, it seems all too. I mean, I I kind of predicted before it even was revealed that like oh this 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 cult leader that's Arthur's son. Like yeah, it was I could not see it coming. A, yeah, exactly. You saw that if if you're reading this book, you sh- you. You probably saw that coming uh, scores of pages before it actually happened. Not everybody on the internet who read this book apparently did. Really? Just saying. Really? Yeah, really. Did you like Google reviews of it or something? Yeah, I read some peripheral some material stuff. and some people sort uh, of. So I liked how she. I mean, I, I, I'm a sucker for the story where you have these seemingly unrelated characters and then you figure out how they all ended up getting together. I, 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 or figuring out how they're all connected. Mm-hmm. Almost every time that. that, that uh, trope is used in a novel or a movie, I like it. Uh, so I, I liked it in, in this particular book. I like how you picked up on who all these individual people were over time. The fact that this guy who was the stage actor from the first scene, his son became the prophet who hunted Kirsten through the woods of western Michigan post-apocalypse. That was kind of an interesting storyline, and it didn't feel... Um, uh, sure. I mean, if it if they weren't all connected, it probably wouldn't be a story. Mm-hmm. But I, I thought that was interesting. I thought it made it kind of a page turner. It, I thought that's what made this novel interesting is that there's definitely some literary fiction aspects to it uh, because it's about art and, and it definitely. Definitely, there's definitely there's definitely literary fiction uh, aspects to it. But it's like it's a bit of an adventure too. It's a bit of a, a mystery. It's a bit of a um, exciting page turner. Well, the action I- scenes. Sorry, Grace, well, I was going to say the ironic thing is that like tying all of the characters together makes you think that everything happens for a reason, which was like which the is, whole problem yeah. with this cult to begin with. So I find that kind of funny. Oh yeah, and like l- little quotes from the Book of Revelations and stuff, and you're like, whoa. And I, I felt that overall. I mean, again, sorry, I'm always talking about themes, and I, I felt that the book did have some pretty serious stuff to say about religion and civilization and the glue art. that holds us all together. About art. About art and the role of art and all that, mm-hmm. but and, about, uh, and and then for for me, what I what I the the scenes for me, and I hope we talk about this at some point. But the scenes for me that were the best in the in the book were at the airport, and I was like every I was like get me back to what's going on at the airport. So the and the and for those who are listening, the the airport scene is there's a whole group of people who were stranded at the airport when the Georgian flu came, and they all lived. Including Arthur's second wife, his son, who became the prophet. his good friends from teenage times, all of these characters. Right. So she was messing with you the whole time. Everything does happen for a reason, and it's okay as long as you don't become a cult leader. Is that what we're? Is that what, what we're taking away from this book? I learned. I mean, personally, I learned a lot about how to loot and f- scavenge for food. Grace, if there were something like that to happen. And I wanted to ask you, like, sort of a craft person. I mean, whether there were some craft takeaways from this this book for you. Well, I think it. It if 
you want to prepare for something like this happening. It makes sense to be to learn as many techniques, various skills as you can, just in case. Yeah, I mean, is looting and killing with knives are those crafts? Could you say those are crafts? Well, I mean, or? where do you get your knives from? Like, if civilization collapses, like yeah. where? You, I mean, yeah, hopefully you're, you're you stockpile some knives. But if not, you're gonna have to learn metalsmithing. There is a lot of stockpiling <laughs> in this. Uh, Kristen is the knife thrower. Or Kirsten, sorry, Kirsten. is the knife thrower in this book, and she's kind of a badass knife thrower. She's definitely a badass, and I think it's very interesting that I mean, I, I feel like. I liked her character the most out of any of them. I know she's she's kind of a protagonist. She's kind of a Katniss, but she's not necessarily. Like, she's, in the beginning, she's a little girl who is not really fitting in with the other child actors who are in there. She receives some kindness from Arthur and unfortunately sees him die on stage, but she has great memories of him and receives a copy of these comics that Arthur's first wife drew for many many years it was like a passion project only two issues were ever created probably printed at kinko's or whatever and she reads them constantly and then this prophet the son of arthur is also reading these comics constantly and they kind of translate them differently which i also find very interesting that both of these i mean it's another like deus ex machina kind of situation like both of these people who survived happen to be heavily influenced by this comic sci-fi you know um indie comic kind of thing and they just read it completely differently and then 20 years later they both head for this collision in western michigan Mm -hmm. and that that's kind of the that's mm-hmm. that basically. What are the odds? So, right. so back to whether your first question is describe this novel. We have basically now described the novel. And and, and in terms of like taking the conversation to the next part about whether or not we liked it or whether or not we think this book is worth recommending, Cedric, why don't you tell us what you thought? Okay, well, I've been I, waiting. I, I'd like to get this off my chest, and this is a this is a major spoiler for the end of the book. But so you know. This this enclave is living in this airport. They've they have this small village, and the book ends um, in the top of the control tower. Um, Clark, uh, who is Arthur Leander's old friend, uh, asks for asks Kirsten to come to the top of the tower. He has this telescope trained on something in the distance, and it's another city a couple of miles away or a town lit up with electricity, and then the book just ends. And I was reading this on my phone, and I threw my phone across the room, you know, doing serious damage <laughs> really? to it. It's a, it's a cheap phone. It doesn't matter. Um, you know, 25 years after the uh, civilization ends, you see electricity two miles away. What do you do, Brennan? Well, I don't know. Well, I mean, do, I love that ending. I actually... I. I, I mean, you like want it to that. end with some hope, right? I want to go there. Well, that's what the, it's implied that that's what we're going to do. But the guy oh, who so was Arthur's mad. friend has like I thought they he were was so that. invested in this. So, he, so this is this character. I thought I, no, I can't remember his name, but I loved this character because he's the guy who at the airport sets up this museum. Oh, Clark. Of, yeah, Clark. yeah, Clark. Oh, Clark. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Clark. Yeah, Clark. Arthur Leander's Best gay friend. friend. Yes, he sets up this museum to culture before the fall. Or and it flu. kind of starts out as like a hobby to pass the time because there's literally and nothing to do. So he puts an like airport. an it's iPod. Like he puts a credit card in there. Just these, these weird, like a pair of stilettos from somebody's luggage. I think it's very things sweet. Things that mean a whole lot to us right now, but would mean nothing post-apocalypse. And my favorite part about it is... Wouldn't they? 
he's reading this. He, he one of the things that he collects are these reports that he would write about people. So he was like an executive, right? Oh, Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? And that he, was hilarious. Oh my god! I mean, he is. He's the guy who was this executive coach, and he would go in and meet with corporate middle managers or executives and tell them ways that they can, you know, better do whatever you do in corporate America. And the, I mean, if you have spent any time in corporate America, the language is so familiar in this book, and it, it does kind of break your heart reading it because you think about how much time he spent writing these things, how much they meant to him because it was his career, how much they meant to the person that he was writing them about, mm -hmm. and now they mean nothing. And he realizes how preposterous that was. All that back to here he is, he's been living in the airport for 20 years with nothing going on, and he has kind of embraced this new world, and he's I think he's not sure if he wants to go towards the light. Oh, she and, might, and, but he's basically Well, there's the threat. There's this implied threat. I mean, this is a state of anarchy, you know. The, yeah, yeah the, or... The it's, traveling it's symphonies. The I don't know if I want to go back to what it was before. Mm. You see, I, I've... Yeah, pointing out the thing about his um, 360 reports, which I also found very funny, especially since there was not, like, necessarily a lot of reading material. So people were, like, reading it and, like, you know, really discussing, like, the 360 reports over the course of these, like, many years since probably all of those people were dead. Um, I also, I think it's, there's a parallel there with um, um, Jivan's brother, who, like, continued writing his, oh, like... Yeah. Totally. Like his ghost written book for some charity executive or something, even after they were quarantined, they knew that most people were dead. And he's just like, well, I mean, what else am I going to do? I'm just going to keep working. Yeah. Jivan, so Jivan's the guy who jumped on the stage at the beginning of the. To save the Arthur, Arthur, who was also a photo journalist slash paparazzi who followed like all of this, all of this intertwining is kind of precious. I felt like I mean, it was definitely entertaining and it, it, it kept me looking at what was going to happen. Did you think it was too, too, Cedric, did you think it was just too cheap the way it ended or too, you know, silly? I didn't find it believable. You know, and I, I, I do think this was, this was an excellent literary novel. I felt that there were elements of like Stephen King's The Stand and Cormac McCarthy, and it really was in great, it connected very well to this existing body of literature. And I think this um, collective fear we have, you know, that, yeah, we could all just be wiped out by an asteroid or the flu, I guess. But, yeah, I felt that the ending just... I felt it was just cut short, too short. But I guess, again, we're talking about civilization being wiped out, so what's my, what's my issue exactly? I, I, think, I think it worked in terms of ending on an up note, ending with, like, giving a little hope that, like, some stuff is going to yeah. get better, like things get better situation. Um, I mean, I definitely saw like the Cormac McCarthy, like yeah. the road. I saw the references for sure. I've recently read um, Neil Stevenson's Seven Eves. Have either of you read that? No. It that is, is a very long imposing. Book, it is like 900 pages long, but it's so worth it. And honestly, if you enjoyed this book, if you enjoyed... Station Eleven, thank you. Um, <laughs> if you enjoyed Station Eleven, I really think that like Seven Eves is the next book you need to read because I think it hit a lot of the same themes. It's also about the world ending. It's like 
you know, essentially something hits the moon. And for the first few days after something hits the moon and breaking it up into seven pieces, everyone's thinking, what hit the moon? But then this one astrophysicist who's essentially like a Neil deGrasse Tyson character, he realizes after a few days, oh no, like what hit the moon is irrelevant. What happens now, like what happens to the moon now, that's important. And eventually like, he theorizes that the moon is going to break up into many pieces as it hits each other, as it, the pieces hit each other, and then it becomes eventually a white sky. This is actually a teaser for Grace's upcoming podcast <laughs> on... I will talk about this all day. And then the hard rain starts in which many, many asteroids hit the Earth and the atmosphere becomes fire for mm, a couple thousand years. And it's told from the story of some people who are on the International Space Station. So again, like people who are spared from this apocalypse. And it is so epic. That I is mean, like, this idea that because like these people in this book, they're, they're stranded and they like, they're isolated from this thing. And it is this weird psychological element to that. Yeah, there's so much psychology to it. And also the, you know, it makes you wonder what would I do if I were in this situation? Would I be strong enough to survive? Would I like fall into, in the case of seven, uh, station 11, you know, would I fall into this cult? Like, would I fall into this cult of personality in seven eves? It's do I work for the greater good of the community or do I get into some petty rivalries? It's such an amazing book. I hope one of you reads it so I can have someone to talk about it with because so far no one I know has read it aside from me, but it also has these intertwining of storylines where, but I think, partly because it's a lot longer and partly because I did think that Station Eleven was a little saccharine in, in its storyline merging, how everyone. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Okay. Like, I agree so with I, that. I, did yeah. I do agree with that. I, can I just say, I mean, so yes, I, I felt disappointed at the end because, because there was the hope. Because as you said, you know, it leaves you with this hope. And then I went to swipe my phone to the next page and I was like, what, that's it? And what I really wanted, not that anybody cares, but what I really wanted, Brennan, was for a plane to appear. You know, like Clark is like in the airport. Early on, people are thinking somebody somewhere has got to be alive and fly over. So I think because I really wanted that plane to appear, I mean, people, a couple of pilots leave the airport earlier on, never come back. It's like Noah in the Ark oh, or something like that. What happened to that, yeah. So then to see this electricity on the horizon, you know? Uh, so, yeah, and Chris, who hasn't read the book, pointed out, you know, maybe she's just holding out for a room for a sequel here, you know? I didn't feel to me like this was going to have a sequel. Um, I, I just felt like that was more of a symbol of... Grace is shaking her head. But yeah, I agree. No, no, no. I, I also agree that there wasn't... There's not going to be a sequel. I, well, I didn't... So, I, I liked the, the light in the distance. I thought that was... Um, I enjoyed that ending. Uh, what I didn't like is I didn't feel like... So we talked about how all these characters were connected. I, I didn't... F- maybe I missed it, but I didn't feel like they ever put together how they were connected. So there's this confrontation at the end between Kirsten and the prophet, and they obviously have this connection. There's this connection to Arthur, and I didn't think that everybody ever figured it out that they were all connected to Arthur. Didn't Clark figure it out? I'm not certain. I don't. Well, I think Kirsten realized that she was connected to the prophet through this, through this she, comic. She, but, but that, but they that never completely actually got misses that he, the son of the, you know, the. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. 
So I, I thought that there would be this moment where somebody gained the perspective about how all of these folks had this kind of line drawn between them, and mm-hmm. that never really happened. Huh. Um, and then Jeevan, who, which this was a, this was a another dislike I had in the story. You start the novel with him, and the first chapter is you're in his head as he's figuring out whether or not he should jump up on stage to save Arthur and how he's perceived, and then he goes off and decides he wants to be a paramedic, and then, you know. And then he kind of, like, falls away at the end of the book. Yeah, and we that's see a good him. point. We he see what happens away. to him, but he's because completely he's extraneous to what happens in the novel. You see the collapse almost more intense, most intensely from his yeah. point of view, because he's trying to save his handicapped brother, or his brother who's... um. In a wheelchair because he was an injured vet, I yeah, think, yeah. like that. So yeah, he, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And then he, I, I also felt that there were some some loose threads. I mean, yes. it was impressively connected in some respects. But I, there was but like a couple stitches missing, like you know. Mm. Um, so that that was a, that was a struggle for me for the book. The the other images from the book that are are lasting, and I think that you know sh- shows her talent. I talked about the airport. Um, I thought the scenes at the airport, if you, if you read this book for nothing else, the scenes at the airport are terrific. The, the moments when they realize that they are, um, that the, the world is starting to end, the TVs go off, the water stops, the food stops. It's really incredible. And then, Cedric, you, you alluded to this earlier, there's this plane that lands at the airport as the F- Georgia flu is spreading and there's people on the plane who have the Georgia flu. And, they, and so they know at this point that those people are going to be dead for within 48 hours. So instead of getting anybody off the plane, the plane lands and parks out at the end of the airport and then just sits there. And it's this image for all of these people in the airport. I mean, it's a giant coffin um, with, with presumably a few hundred dead people in it. Um, and it's there forever while they're... It, I just thought the way she wrote that and the way she wrote about the character's reaction to it was pretty great. Mm-hmm. It was, it, yeah, it really was some chilling stuff. Um, and I thought it was interesting that the airport itself, the reason the people in the airport survived is because there was a quarantine barrier put up around the airport. Yeah. So they, they Yeah, were, they were completely unaware of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, sh- I liked what she was saying about, like, what more perfect place could this group of people be stuck at the end of the, at the, basically the end of civilization than an airport, which is probably the Detroit airport or the Grand Rapids airport or something. I, I don't know. But uh, just tell me what city it was, it's Emily. <laughs> yeah, anyway. like a fake city. So it makes me think it was like a regional airport because a lot of those planes were landing there because Toronto was closed, yeah, Detroit yeah. was closed. The flu was already ravaging the city. how perfect for our society so right now that you're stuck at an airport. Like you just end up in western Michigan... And you have to figure out what's going to happen for yourself. I mean, I love the image of the guy as at first as everyone's like, well, we can't just like take this food because I mean, like that's stealing and like a business travel is like, here's my Amex, like we'll we'll cover it. You know, all of the food service workers have pieced out. They are gone. And um, I love the image of the Amex just sitting there for like years and years before yeah. eventually yeah, ending yeah. Up, in and it ends up in the museum. Mm-hmm. Yes, 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 yes. Brennan, I th- I really came to the conclusion that Severn City was a hybrid between Traverse City and, like, isn't Severn somewhere in Canada? And, of course, yeah. Emily St. John Mendoza is Canadian. 
um, which probably gives her a very unique perspective on the world. Um, but yeah, she because she lives in tra- Brooklyn now, doesn't she? That's a good point. Doesn't everybody? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody who's anybody. Every- <laughs> we <laughs> talked. We talked in a previous podcast about Brooklyn. the Brooklyn moment, and then you you're, you pointed out that has there ever not been a Brooklyn moment, which I which sticks with me and is true. Uh, so <laughs> she's <laughs> she's part of that that uh, that world right now, um, and I, you know I she got a lot of lot of uh, accolades for this book, and I think. Um, as we said in a previous podcast, we encourage anyone who's listening to this to go back and listen to these other podcasts because we're this is just the greatest new podcast out there. Uh, but we talked about how um, her career has really taken off uh, because of this book, and I think that's great. Um, I think I think she shows a lot of talent here, and I liked the fact that she could write literary fiction and still make it exciting, still make a, a plot, you know. And she, is she a former dancer, a former ballerina, or something? Oh, I didn't like that. know that. No. Oh, well, I should. That's unqualified. I should well, probably. Look so there's that. the, you know, maybe a connection to the arts. Mm-hmm. To, I want to. I want to ask maybe the group. Why do you think we're interested in this kind of genre right now? Oh, I have very, very strong opinions about this. So I'm a kind of a connoisseur when it comes to dystopian fiction. I've read, every. I mean, from when I was a little kid reading 1984 and Fahrenheit 451 and Animal Farm and Clockwork Orange and all of those to the modern day. Uh, I've read The Hunger Games. I've read The Maze Runner. I've read the whole um, Divergent series, many others that are less notable. Um, I really you feel like... You actually read the Divergent series, Grace. Uh, I did. Sorry I to did. Go on. No, I did. On. Although with the third book, I started reading and then had to quit because I hated it so much. That was me with The Hunger Games yeah. last two. Hate reading. So... I, I f- have a theory that we are so into dystopian fiction because of the economic collapse of 2007, 2008. That's my theory, especially with um, the teen dystopian fiction that is so popular right now. Like Kids are growing up in a world that seems extremely uncertain, and so it's not that it's comforting, but it's maybe more relatable than happy-go-lucky, everything's-perfect kind of fiction. Um, yeah. But in a way, it, it follows a very specific pattern, so it also is kind of safe. It's also kind of comforting. And there's a really great Twitter account called, like, Dystopian YA Novel that's Pre- preppers so funny. Preppers. No, I'm just kidding. No, no. There's this, there's this whole Twitter account that's, like, uh, tweeting from the point of view of someone like Katniss, because there's so many series that are in the same vein. It's like, well, I never thought I would fit in. I guess I'm just special. Or, you know, like I I I was I was going to be part of a society, but then I found love. Or, you know, all of these really funny tropes that you see in this these dystopian fiction novels. Um so I I feel like that's the reason like the global uncertainty in terms of financial issues. Like I feel like that's why dystopian fiction is so hot right now. Cedric, you're you're the Mercantile's librarian. You see books go out all the time. You order books. You see what's popular. Why? Why is this hot right now? Okay. Well, so I think, I think this is almost part of a subgenre of dystopian fiction, like the survivor subgenre, oh. which involves. And this goes. You, you could almost connect this genre with something that's not dystopian at all. I mean, for very early on, I was really into like books about survival. I collected survival guides and really loved My Side of the Mountain. And part God, of me, that's I, a great book. Great book. And but I just feel I really felt reading this book. This might just be my personal take on it. That there's an element of wishful thinking here, you know, because um, all the all, like the characters in this book are definitely fondly remembering 
um, technology and all of its benefits. But there are certain scenes in the book, uh, you know, where kids in the airport are just obsessed with their Nintendo, this, their handheld Nintendo games. And then all that falls away and you have this raw, unmitigated reality. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of ugly stuff that comes with that, but um, even down to the fact that this is a, you have this tra- traveling drama troupe, you have, you get, you're getting back to like real performance, yeah. which I realize is a bit of a, yeah. No, they're, they're sense, getting back to the, you know, some of the oldest play acting in the, in history, some of the oldest type of music in history. Exactly. And you even, you, you see the reemergence of somebody starts printing a newspaper as civilization begins to come back. So you have almost this return to these legacy technologies and this there's this nostalgia for them, as there is the, the nostalgia in the Museum of Civilization. But So that's my take. I, I really thought there was an element of wishful, th- wishful thinking. Station Eleven, is, is, it is full hipster for anybody who wants to like <laughs> listen to music. Only missing they want to listen to music on their record player. They want to go back to growing vegetables. Hipsters walking garden. around Brooklyn with little daggers in their belt. Yeah, it was only missing like somebody <laughs> on a typewriter. If you take, if you take this idea... <sighs> that would be steampunk, though. <laughs> <laughs> you take this idea of going back to when things were more, you know, pure to its extreme, you get to when you station can kill 11 with impunity, post George rob your Blue. neighbors. <laughs> right. I, I think I agree. I agree with both of you. I think that's absolutely one of the, those are the, those are some of the reasons this is popular. I, I think I would also add that I think people recognize how fragile the system is and, um, when everything is on your phone and everything is online, that it is not hard to imagine how that could go away so quickly. Right. And for, uh, I know we talk about books here on the 12th story, but um, uh, we're recording this the day after the season finale for a show called Mr. Robot, which has had just incredible success over the last uh, several months on USA Network and also very similar themes. It's about a hacker group that takes down the entire you know, basically the entire economic system of the world. Uh, I mean, it's a r- really terrific um, story that has a lot of the same themes. And I think it's just because people, it's not hard for us to envision that. I mean, before when things were on paper and when things were, we had records of things. And now it's it, the idea that this could just evaporate quickly is, is not so crazy far-fetched. Right. I mean, I'm all pro-digitization, but at the same time, you know, one strong electromagnetic pulse from the sun and our entire, wow, like, digital histories could be wiped out. But that's going to include my... That includes Do our I have to worry debts, about right? that tonight? Does that, does that happen? It happens, oh my but, I God. mean, not, like, I'm regularly. On, I mean, I'm going to have to need something to sleep tonight. <laughs> Just print everything out and put it in your safe. <laughs> 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 like buy a bunch of safes. Between that, between, Staples is going to make so much gra- money. <laughs> between Grace and Mr. Robot last night, I'm just going to go print all my emails. They'll be in a file. You're going to go straight to the hardware store and buy the biggest survival knife that they have. <laughs> survival knife. All right. Well, I, th- I think our work here is done. Um, <laughs> you know, we didn't just... Let's just... Wait, the, the podcast, just for our listeners, we're, we're so glad to have you. Please tell your friends to subscribe uh, on iTunes. You can subscribe to the... 12th Story Podcast. We're uh, also on SoundCloud. On SoundCloud. Uh, we had a great time today. Um, 
I will point out that the podcast was actually shorter than the time it took us to turn the podcast on today, but we're pretty proud of our dedication for being here. I think it shows that our, our moxie and our can-do attitudes, that would help save us in the event of an apocalyptic That's exactly influenza. right. I mean, frankly, if the Georgia flu came, I'm confident that the four of us would be out in Western Michigan. We would totally be protagonists. Somebody might be a cult leader, garden variety cult leader. Oh, everyone's pointing at Cedric. Why are you pointing at me? (laughs) Come on. All right, take us home, Cedric. (laughs) Thanks for listening. The 12th Story Podcast is produced and directed by Gabby Blusher, Brendan Cole, Chris Messick, and Cedric Ruiz. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Special thanks to the Mercantile Library. 